everyone has an anthropology, what they believe human beings are like. Uh, everyone has an anthropology. Some people say there's 113 variations of that, as we just heard. Some people have a high anthropology, meaning they think people in general are good. These people have a more optimistic estimation of the human race. And then there are some people, like Jesus, who believe that people in general are bad. Those in this camp have a low anthropology. They view people as totally depraved. They view people as sinners who desperately need a Savior. And that's the camp I'm in. I have a low anthropology. But make no mistake about it, everyone has an anthropology. Sarah Condon says this, I am faced with the daunting task of articulating a low anthropology, that is, an unflattering view of humanity. People accuse me of being negative or of losing sight of the fact that human beings are mostly good. So I pause and consider their opinions, and then I start to judge them for having those opinions. How naive, I say to myself. Then I realize I'm sinning in the middle of a theological discussion, which brings me back to square one. Low anthropology it is. It's true, and it's easy, isn't it? We can be prideful, we can be arrogant and judge people even in the middle of a theological discussion, even in the middle of a Bible study. As we are studying God's Word, we can show the true colors of our hearts. Why does this happen? It's because we are sinners. As Kate Norris says, even though Christians are saints, they are still sinners this side of heaven. We prefer to talk about our need versus our victory because it keeps things in their proper place. Like any good recovery group, we go there, that's to church, to admit we are addicts. We talk about our incredible need for intervention from the outside. Ever been in an argument where neither person can stop hurting each other? Our failure to choose the good. Ever looked back on a decision and suddenly realized the selfish motivations behind them? And our weakness in sin. Ever talked poorly about anyone? Because all these realities admit our human depravity is depraved. Our belief in human sin directly affects our belief in Jesus' power to save. If our need is dire, then his victory is mighty. This is shown at the cross. At the cross, Jesus knew me in my secret and not so secret selfish, selfishness completely. He came specifically to take my place of condemnation and give me a right relationship with God instead. He took away my sin and reckoned to me, imputed his righteousness by admitting I'm a sinner, I'm weak, I simply admit the truth shown at the cross. I am weak, but he is strong. This is exactly what we're going to see in Mark's gospel today. So turn to Mark chapter 10. Jesus will talk about these very things with a man who has come to be known as the rich young ruler. Now, I'm not sure if he likes that nickname or not, but He's stuck with it as far as I can tell. And Jesus will show the rich young ruler that his anthropology is off. His anthropology is too high. 
Jesus will teach this rich millennial that in order to inherit eternal life, you have to first have a low anthropology. But that's something that this young man just can't stomach. In fact, many people can't stomach this truth. But in order to follow Jesus, you have to embrace that you are a sinner. And yet, even though we are sinners, even though we have a low anthropology, the good news of the gospel that we'll see in Mark's gospel today is that Jesus is more merciful than we are sinful. Yes, you are a sinner, and I am a sinner, but here's the good news. Jesus is more merciful than we are sinful. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So as Jesus begins some road trip that he's going on, he gets interrupted at a gas station by some young rich kid, and this guy asks Jesus, who he refers to as good teacher, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by telling the young man that, first of all, no one is good. Jesus reveals to this guy that he himself has a low anthropology, a low view of humanity. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is good because Jesus is God. In fact, Jesus is the only truly good person who ever lived, and that's because Jesus never sinned at all, not once. But notice that Jesus doesn't even go there with this man. Jesus knows that this man thinks he's a pretty good person and that he will struggle to hear the truth about his own sinful heart. So Jesus doesn't even try to explain that he is, in fact, God incarnate to this guy. There's no way that this yuppie is going to believe that Jesus is, in fact, God because this yuppie thinks that he himself is a good person who has faithfully obeyed God's law. This kid's anthropology is too high. So Jesus, the only true good person who never sinned, he confronts a young man who thinks that he is a good person and has never sinned. This guy thinks he has kept all of God's commandments. But Jesus says that no one is good except God, and then Jesus explains why no one is good except God. And Jesus does it by reciting some of the Ten Commandments. No one is good because the Ten Commandments prove it. Jesus proves that no one is good by citing some of the Ten Commandments which were given to show that no one is good. Now remember, God's law, God's moral law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, God's law functions like a mirror. 
It shows you your sin. It exposes your heart. It exposes you as the sinner that you are. But this young man has looked into the mirror of the law, and he thought his reflection was pretty good. So he checks off each commandment that Jesus drops on him. Do not murder? Check. Do not commit adultery? Check. Do not steal? Check. Do not bear false witness? Check. Do not defraud? Check. Honor your father and mother? Check. I've done all these things since I was a little boy, Jesus. Look up high anthropology in the dictionary, Jesus, and you will see my smiling face. So Jesus' reply to him was right up his alley. This guy thinks, I can keep all the commandments easy. This guy says, if that's all it takes to get into heaven, then where's the door, Jesus? I can walk right on through right now. Keep the commandments, you say, Jesus? Been there and done that. Got the completed Awana books and trophies to prove it. I'm good. I'm perfect. This young rich guy leans on his resume to try and convince Jesus that he is a good person. He's handsome, he's single, he's wealthy, he has 25,000 followers on Twitter, he's written an op-ed piece that went viral, he was on a dating reality show and the girl picked him. And he was mentioned in a New York Times article about the 20 most influential millennials to keep an eye on. He has it all. The rich young ruler, though, loved his money, his cheddar, his green, his skrilla. His wealth is his worth. His income is his identity. His cash is his king. He is a winner in the world's eyes. And he has no plans to give up trying to win. And his question about inheriting eternal life, isn't so much a search for what he is lacking. He's not seeking what he lacks from Jesus. What he is seeking from Jesus is affirmation that he has already done enough, that his performance has earned him a ticket to heaven. He can't imagine pursuing eternal life any other way than doing it through striving and winning. This guy thinks that keeping the commandments and being perfect is something that people can pull off. But Jesus' whole point here is that we can't. God's law is so much greater and deeper and more rigid than we ever imagined. God's law is unflinching in its demand for righteousness. God's law is unflinching in its demands for perfection, for righteousness. It will not budge. So God's law doesn't demand just a little of us. God's law demands all of us. It demands perfection. And if we embrace a low anthropology then that means we have to be given the righteousness and the perfection that we need in order to be made right with a holy God. And this rich young ruler wants to know what he has to do in order to inherit eternal life. But he seems to have missed how an inheritance works. You receive an inheritance, don't you? That's probably how he received all of his money. He has forgotten how an inheritance works. It's given 
to you because you are in the family. He has forgotten how it works, and yet the answer to his question is standing right in front of him. Jesus, Jesus is the one who can give him eternal life. To inherit eternal life, you have to be in God's family. You can't earn God's grace. You can't earn his favor. It's a gift. It's an inheritance that one receives with the empty hands of faith. So clearly this young man has inherited a lot of cash from his father, and yet he can't see that grace is an inheritance. So Jesus is bringing the hammer of the law down on this kid's self-righteousness. Jesus wants this young man to see this truth, that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. And everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. Everything the Bible says about sin, it's true of you. But everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. The bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever think. In fact, I believe that our sinfulness actually keeps us from truly grasping and understanding just how sinful we really are. And that's exactly what is happening with this guy. His sinfulness is keeping him from seeing just how sinful he really is. Sin is deceptive. It deceives us. So it's true. Our sinfulness actually keeps us from grasping just how bad we are. But the good news of the gospel is that God is far better and more loving than we could ever hope or imagine. We can't even begin to fully understand just how loving and gracious and merciful God is. I just read it again this morning. It was our call to worship out of Exodus 34. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I'm going to show you my goodness. My glory is my goodness. And God says, I'm merciful. I'm gracious, slow to anger, forgiving. This is who God is. He's better than we could ever hope or imagine. His goodness far exceeds any thoughts that we could ever conjure up. And we see this in how Jesus responds to the young man. How does Jesus respond to this self-righteous millennial? Jesus looks at him and loves him. Jesus looks at him, at this guy that says, I'm good. This guy who looks at the sinless son of God and says, I'm good. Jesus looks at him and he loves him. Look at verse 21 again. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. What an amazing verse. Jesus loves this kid. This kid's self-righteousness ran right into Jesus' love. So in verse 21, we actually see that Jesus is more merciful than we are sinful. And that truth, that Jesus is more merciful than we are sinful, it empowers us and it gives us freedom to confess our sins and to repent. Because Jesus is far more merciful than we are sinful, we can openly confess our sins because we know that His love will never be moved by our sin. Our sin does not close the door to his love. In fact, his love 
if understood correctly, actually empowers us to fight and kill sin. His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love actually frees us to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, and to mortify, to use the old Puritan word, to kill our sins, to put them to death. And this is why low anthropology is my love language. Low anthropology is my love language because it reminds me of Jesus. My sins remind me of Jesus. As Ian Duguid says, the purpose of confessing our sins is not to render us miserable by simply reminding us what great sinners we are. It is to remind us of what a great Savior we have. This is why low anthropology is my love language, because it reminds me of what a great Savior Jesus is, that Jesus still keeps loving me. I was driving through town yesterday, irritated that people were slow or not turning or moving or doing this, and there were so many cars, and I was with my son Asher, and I said, don't these people know that I'm the king? Don't they know that I'm driving through town and they should just all get out of the way? Like, they should know this. Everybody should just clear the path and let me go and get to where I want to get. Jesus still loves a guy like me who gets upset about something so trivial as that. And this is why part of our liturgy on Sunday morning includes a prayer of confession and celebration because we want to confess our sins. And when we do that, it reminds us of what a great Savior we have and we then can celebrate Him and His work for us. But the rich young ruler was not comfortable confessing his sins. He was actually keeping his sin from Jesus. He was blinded by his own self-righteousness. And yet, even in this moment, Jesus loves him. That's what Jesus does. Jesus never turns his back on us when we are knee-deep in the mess of our sin. Let me say that again. Jesus never turns his back on us. He never turns his back on you when you are knee-deep in the mess of your sin. Instead, Jesus looks at us with compassion and with sweet, transforming, redemptive love. Jesus loves us even when we still don't get it. Jesus continues to love us even when we rebel against him. Jesus even loves us when we try to rely on our own self-righteousness and not him. And so, with patient love, Jesus presses the law even further into this man's heart in verse 21. And basically says, you only have to do one simple little thing. Give away all your money. Clear out your bank account, have a garage sale, and give it all away to the poor. And this young man thought he had danced around the unflinching, rigid demands of God's law. But Jesus goes for the jugular here. Jesus goes straight to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, to the first commandment. Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7. 
captures it. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This guy had a first commandment problem. He had first commandment issues. Jesus is teaching him that he claims total allegiance. God really means what he says in the first commandment. Isn't that shocking? God actually means what he says. So Jesus has exposed this guy's art. His heart exposed his idol, which was money. Money was this guy's idol. He worshipped money and possessions. But lest we think we're off the hook here, Jesus does the same thing to us, says the same thing to us today. Right now, from this passage, Jesus wants to expose the idols of your heart and the idols of my heart. This guy worshipped money, and there's nothing wrong with money per se. There's nothing wrong with money per se. It's what Paul says, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. But for this guy, money was his idol. For you and me, it might not be money. It could be anything that you and I love more than God. Your idol might be money. You know, you can be dirt poor and money is still your idol. It doesn't mean that because you're rich, that's the only way money can be your idol. You can be dirt poor and money is your idol. It could be fame, it could be your identity, how you want to be loved and liked by other people so desperately. We all have heart idols that compete for our love and affection. So understand that this text is not primarily about money and possessions. It's about idolatry. It's about how all of us are guilty of loving something more than God. It's about how we all have first commandment issues. But at least this man was open. His sin was self-righteousness, just like the Pharisees. The difference is that he wanted to know the truth. He was asking Jesus questions, just like the self-righteous Pharisees. But the difference is the Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus with their questions. This guy was open to the truth. He just didn't like the answer. So he went away sad. And the Pharisees, how do they leave their interactions with and their questioning of Jesus? They leave angry. They leave rigid further cemented in their self-righteousness. But this guy leaves sad because he hears the truth, but he doesn't want to give up his idol, which is money. Jesus gives the rich young ruler a command that he cannot keep. Love God with all of your heart. But this, the first commandment that Jesus dropped on him, it's actually a good thing because it graciously allows the rich young ruler to give up and to admit that he's a loser and that he's not a winner. And now he can follow Jesus into eternal life because he'll realize, I can't love the Lord my God with all my heart because I'm a sinner. Jesus is the only person that loved God with all of his heart. So Jesus drops the first commandment on this rich young ruler so that he would despair and realize, I'm not a winner, I'm a loser, I need a savior. But the rich young ruler doesn't receive it as a good thing, and so he leaves sad. And Jesus will then use this guy's reaction as an opportunity to teach the disciples. Look at verse 34. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God and the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus said to them again children 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So now Jesus looks at the disciples. He looked earlier at the rich young ruler. Now he looks at the disciples and tells them how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed at this. Then Jesus tells them it's actually difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus mentions for a second time how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's easier for a real camel to try to squeeze through the eye of a real needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are exceedingly astonished, Mark says, and they wonder how anybody could be saved. Now, it was common in their day to assume that if you were rich, it was because God blessed you. And if God did bless you with wealth, then it was assumed that you were going to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus deconstructs all that. Jesus tells the disciples that, yes, just like the rich young ruler, for some rich people, not all, but for some rich people, giving up the idol of wealth is difficult. That's exactly what we saw with the rich young ruler. But Jesus also says here that it's difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And that's why the disciples say, then who can be saved? Jesus is driving home what he has been saying for two chapters now that we've seen in Mark. That it takes humility. That you have to become a child. That's why Jesus calls them children again in verse 24. Jesus wants them to know that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. And so here's what it kind of looks like. Jesus looked at them again in verse 23. And then he tells them how difficult it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24, the disciples are amazed. And then Jesus calls them children. And then he says again how difficult it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are exceedingly astonished at this point. And then Jesus looks at them for a second time. So Jesus just told them, that it's difficult for rich people and it's difficult for all people to enter the kingdom of God. And that's why the disciples reply with, how can anybody be saved? If it's hard for rich people and hard for the rest of humanity who is not rich, then how can anyone make it? And Jesus answers their question by saying that the only way any sinner can come to God is if God draws that sinner. No sinner can come to God on his own initiative. That's low anthropology. That's total depravity. It's only possible if God opens a sinner's eyes to the beauty of Jesus. It's only if God makes them alive spiritually. It's only possible if God, to use the theological term, regenerates a person, makes them alive so that they can repent turn from their sins, and trust in Jesus. It's impossible for any person who is dead in sin to make himself alive. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Jesus' love language is low anthropology. That's what he likes to talk about. That's why he came, to save sinners, totally depraved sinners, to redeem his elect people. His love is for sinners, for totally depraved people. 
And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is an answer to the disciples' question, then who can be saved? The good news comes when Jesus says in verse 27, With man, salvation is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And that's the point of the law, and that's the point of the gospel. With us, salvation is impossible. That's God's law. You can't save yourself. But for God, everything is possible. That's the gospel. It's when we come face to face with our low anthropology, when we come face to face with the impossibility of doing anything to save ourselves, that the gospel of Jesus then floods in. And as soon as the gospel of Jesus floods in, in this conversation, so does Peter. No surprise there. That's what we saw several weeks ago, and it's what we'll see again next week. As soon as Jesus brings the good news of the gospel, one or more of the disciples open their mouths. That's kind of the pattern. And here, Peter's the lucky guy. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter wants to remind Jesus that he and the other disciples gave up everything to follow him. I think there's still a part of Peter that wants to do something to contribute to his salvation. He wants Jesus to know that he, in fact, has done something. I left everything to follow you, Jesus. I've done something. And Peter was probably a wealthy fisherman. He had a pretty thriving fishing business. So Peter was probably a rich young man, a rich young fisherman who did leave everything and follow Jesus. And Peter wants to know here, well, what about me, Jesus? What does Peter, as a rich young fisherman who gave up his business, what does he get for following Jesus? Now, Peter doesn't ask Jesus that here in Mark, but in Matthew's gospel, Peter does. In Matthew 19, 27, it says this, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter wants to know, What's in it for me, a rich young fisherman who gave it all up and followed you, Jesus? That rich young ruler didn't want to give it up and follow you. I gave up a fishing business, a thriving fishing business to follow you. What's in it for me? Look what I did. What do I get in return? So Jesus reminds them that when a person gives up everything to follow him, they will be rewarded, Jesus says, in this life, and they'll be rewarded with eternal life. They will receive family in this life, Jesus says. They will be taken care of. You'll be taken care of, Peter, for following me. And then Jesus adds, you're also going to get persecutions. You'll be persecuted for following me, Jesus says, which we know Peter and the disciples were. In fact, as we'll see next week, Jesus will further explain his suffering and the suffering that the disciples would soon undergo. But recall how throughout the last few sections in Mark's gospel, we have seen over and over again that Jesus came for the last, the lost, and the least. It's because in the kingdom of God, you win by losing. You live 
by dying. You get by giving. So it's not the winners of this world who are first. In the kingdom of God, it's the last who are first. It's those who come to the end of themselves and recognize that they have nowhere else to go but to Jesus. And who wouldn't want to come to Jesus? Who wouldn't want to come to him and follow him? He's loving and he's caring and he's compassionate and he's merciful to sinners. How welcoming Jesus is to sinners like us. Jesus loves people who know that they have a low anthropology. Jesus' love language is low anthropology. Jesus loves people who believe that they do have a low anthropology, that they're undeserving of God's love. Jesus loves those who just can't seem to get their act together. Is that you today? Just can't seem to get your act together. Jesus loves you. So who wouldn't want to come to Jesus when he is so welcoming? It's true, Jesus is more merciful than we are sinful. And that's the good news of the Gospels, that we can't out his mercy. We can't out his grace. We show up here every week as needy sinners. And that's why here at Grace, we prefer to talk about our low anthropology. We prefer to talk about our need versus our victory because it keeps things in their proper place. Like any good recovery group, we come to church to admit that we are addicts. We are addicted to sin, addicted to ourselves, addicted to always wanting to get our own way. I always want my own way. Every single time about every single thing. I think Heather's given up in the car. She gave up a long ago. I have to control the radio. I get in and she's listening to some other channel. She drove the van before me and then I hop in and immediately change it because I'm in control. I'm the king. I'm addicted to getting my way. We're all addicted to ourselves. Addicted to our own self-salvation projects. Addicted to our own little kingdoms of self rather than the kingdom of God. We're addicted to coming in first and not last place. And yet, how are we met here week after week as people who are addicted to self? How are we met here in this church week after week as people who are totally, unapologetically addicted to self? Lovers of self. How are we met? We are met by a merciful Savior. We're met by a merciful Savior. Isn't that crazy? We are sinful, yes, but Jesus is far more merciful than we could ever dream. So let's close with something else that Sarah Condon said about how our low anthropology follows us even to church. She said, sure, for a few seconds maybe even a minute or two, we can sit in a dark room and believe that humanity is bootstrapping its way into a collective hashtag best life now. But then we talk to another human being who wants something from us, or we pause to reflect on our own bosses, in-laws, and or spouses, and there it is again, 
good old-fashioned sin and pride making itself known. Fortunately, there is another gap in my life that brings me undeniable relief. It happens for about 25 seconds most Sunday mornings. Each time I receive the bread and wine of communion at church, all of my sin meets all of God's forgiveness. Inevitably, I have approached the rail burdened by myself. I have snapped at my children for crawling under pews or judged other people's children for crawling under pews. I've been anxious about my young son's clothing choices while also wondering why the acolyte doesn't have her hair pulled back. It turns out that my low anthropology follows me even there. Whatever sin is usually swimming in my head, it is still treading water on Sunday mornings. After all, church isn't a transgression-free zone. And yet, there is this beautiful moment when I fall to my knees and the body and blood of Christ, broken and spilled on my behalf, is offered to me and my brood of zoo animals. And then it hits me again. Forgiveness, mercy, blood spilled on the floor of my life, washing me white as snow. Christ sees my low anthropology, my sin, my mistakes, and he points to himself hung high on the cross. That short gap of time is one of sheer liberation. It is what gets me through to the next week. In a flash, my judgment and anger are exposed for what they really are, depravity and brokenness. So go ahead and call me negative and fatalistic. I'm okay with that. Because I know that's the only reality where I can honestly hang my hat. The only reality I can bring to the communion rail. Where I am once again reminded that it is not on me to fix myself. Where I am invited to fall to my knees, hold out my hands, and hear that Jesus took my sin and exchanged it for love. Jesus took your sin and exchanged it for love. Believe that today. Jesus took your sin and exchanged it for love. I can't think of a better thought to end a sermon on. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you took our sin to the cross. All the good things that we do and have done and all the bad things that we do and have done. And you bore them all for us. And you gave us your righteousness. You imputed it, credited it to us. All the good that you did, the perfection, the sinless life, the fully obeying God's law. And in that great exchange, we get your life. And on the cross, you took our miserable, self-absorbed, addicted to ourselves, addicted to sin. We're the king and queens of our kingdom and you bore that on the cross for us. And it's amazing. And being reminded of it is a moment of sheer liberation. Set us free once again in Jesus' name. Amen.